1: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
2: Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. This week, we're revisiting one of my favorite episodes, an interview from October 2016 with the co-founders of Restless Books, Ilan Stavins and Joshua Ellison. Restless Books devotes itself to publishing things you don't usually find in English, from Cuban science fiction and illustrated retellings of the Ramayana to doorstopper Hungarian novels. Their catalog features classics like Don Quixote and the Souls of Black Folk, to new immigrant writing from Abu Dhabi and the mind-boggling prose of Alejandro Jodorowsky. Ever since I learned that only 3% of books published in English are in translation, I've been trying to do my part to read more of them. In 2018, for instance, according to the 3% translation database, only 746 books in translation were published, most of them from European languages. So, what does it take to transform a book in one language into a book in another? To answer that question, Ilan Stavins and Joshua Ellison let us in on the secret inside world of bookmaking for a crash course in Publishing 101. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: We're happy you invited us. Thank you. Thank you
2: very much. So, why don't we start with how and why you founded this publishing house?
3: This is Ilan. Restless Books started about three, three and a half years ago in response to what at that time seemed like a very limited diet of uh, international literature for American readers, for English language readers. Um, the, The numbers that are often played around is a 3% of books that are available to American readers come from other countries in translation. I grew up in Mexico City and came to this country as an immigrant and the idea of not having translations available in a country that I chose and that I have become a citizen of became increasingly unacceptable to me. Josh and I joined forces, and Restless Books was born. It has been publishing about between 18 and 20 books a year from all over the world, from Iceland, from China, Israel, Latin America...
1: Yeah. And I think our our outlook is one of abundance. One of the nice things about being one of the few companies that focuses this intensively on international material is that we really do get to pick uh, extraordinary writers, extraordinary books. And I think if you look at the last couple of years in the in the literary world in particular, there've been some real breakthroughs of international authors, books in translation, Knausgaard, Elena Ferrante, enough so I think that the sort of old truism, which was never exactly true, that works in translation don't interest American readers, can't sell in America. I think we're starting to accumulate enough evidence to show that that's not a good assumption anymore.
2: Yeah, it's been great to see this uptick in a focus on translation with those authors you were talking yeah. about, and then with the Man Booker International recognizing yes. translators as well as the original authors. Uh so you guys do have, essentially, the entire speaking world to choose from yeah. beyond, you know, everything. Everyone but the 280 million or so people who speak English. So what has been uh, one of your favorite finds?
1: One book we have is a book from Iceland by a woman named Odney Eyre. She is a writing partner of the singer Björk. And we have an amazing blurb from Björk on the cover saying that Odney is the writer who best captures the female Essence of Now, I believe is the phrase, with about nine exclamation points. Uh, and it's a really incredible book that I think is very, very unlike what American writing typically produces. Uh, another book that was an important one for us is Captivity by a Hungarian writer called Georgi Spiro. It's a, it's a large book in every sense. It's, uh, I think, almost 900 pages. It's kind of Ben-Hur meets Life of Brian. It's a really singular book. I, I think we're looking for singular books. and I, I think the ones that stick out are the ones where we feel like, you know what, nobody else could have written this book and no other publisher could have made it happen in the English language. And when we when we can say that, I think we've done our job.
2: Yeah, it seems like big novels are ascendant, which I think some people are happy about. But all these mentions of Iceland and Hungary and the entirety of Latin America leads me to ask how you find these books. I mean, surely you don't speak all of these languages. So (laughs) how do you locate them?
3: I wish that the... On the one hand, I had more space and energy and time to publish more books. Uh, but on the other hand, I'm happy that I can discern what I'm, I'm passionate about. For instance, we were uh, spending some time in Cuba before the sudden decision to bring down the U.S. embargo and came across a number of science fiction uh, novels that really were extremely that nobody outside of Cuba had paid attention to and that spoke to the very essence of how Cuba has been looked at as the future. The future in Latin America, the future of the Western world, the place where this experiment of a new society, the new man can 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 take shape. When you read those books, you find out that those authors are already making fun of the futuristic language that everybody has dumped on them, and that in fact this is a kind of garbage dump of of theories of how to improve society. So we decided to translate them. Some of them had uh, just been published and others had already been canonized and become classics uh, by authors who had died by the time we put our hands on them. We found the right translators, you don't just translate from the Spanish. You have to translate from a particular Spanish, Cuban Spanish or Argentine Spanish or, or Mexican Spanish. Uh, you have to find a translator that is going to understand what the language of science fiction is about, both in the English-speaking world, in this new language of science fiction in Latin America, seldom presented to American readers. And so we published them. So it happened that our great uh, marketing and publicity person, Barack Obama, decided at that point that this was time to create this connection in our books. were just there arriving to bookstores uh, at a time when people were v- becoming very curious of how Cubans were looking at themselves in this new period.
2: So we found the book, the hypothetical book, Uh, A Cuban masterpiece or something from Serbia or Iceland or Israel, and you've decided to publish it. Can you walk us through the process of what happens? Because it's like some magical alchemy happens between locating the book in a foreign language and then seeing it on the English language bookshelf.
1: Well, let's start a little bit before the acquisition. Okay. Uh, typically, will the first we'll hear about a book will either be, as we said, a recommendation from a translator or a pitch from an agent. And typically, there'll be some English language material available, a small sample usually. Sometimes there'll be a translation into a different language. You know, Perhaps that Serbian book has also been translated into French or Spanish, and we'll be able to look at it in that way. But typically, we're starting with a small English sample, and we basically, on the basis of that sample... And whatever else we can learn about that author and that book, we decide if this is something we want to consider further. Uh, sometimes we'll, at that point, commission a longer sample.
3: And that first sample can be five pages or ten pages, yeah. And sometimes is done by someone who is is interested in this book but has no. translating skills and so it comes really in a very rough and uh, obstructed way so I, I wanted to add that because at times you have to Look at a book in a way that is filtered through obstruction. Can I guess what the style is? It's like kissing through a through a piece of cloth. The experience is there, but you're not quite getting it. And so the intuition has to propel you to say, oh, I think there's enough here for us to ask now a professional translator, somebody who will understand this, to get us 10 good pages or 30 good pages.
1: Yeah, all of which is to say I, there there are many leaps of faith along the way. We we try to make them in the most informed way we can. Then there's a matter of finding the translators. And it's really, at that point, a question of, uh, does the translator connect to the book? Is this, is this a project that the translator wants to dedicate six months, a year of their life to? Do they feel that they can speak in this person's voice? Because that's a really, that's a really big commitment, and it's a real act of love, I think, to be willing to channel someone else's voice. It's very intimate,
3: because you want to create books that are in translation but where the reader can forget that a translation is being presented or not fully forget but at least get a taste that the translator really is working uh, in unison uh, closely with the author and if the translation is bad, the book can bomb If if the book is bad, a translator might improve it a little bit but not that much so you really that marriage between a translator and an author is crucial so the moment that a- acquisition takes place you send it out to the right translator and uh, you don't hear from the translator until 6 months later or a year later and then and then you copy edit a translation, which is in and of itself a challenge. Because when you have a manuscript that is coming in the original language, you can go to the author and say, what do you mean by this? But when you have a book that has that is being translated, you can go to the translator and say, what do you mean by this? And then the translator will say, well, I mean this, but the author means that. And not, how can we reconcile that. We published a book called the Cowboy Bible that is written in Spanglish, at least portions of it, meaning the hybrid between English and Spanish. And if it's written in Spanglish, in Spanish or for a Spanish-speaking audience, you don't simply present it in the same way in English. You have to create another type of Spanglish that will be attractive to English-language readers that will know a little bit of Spanish. And I would say that the translator there is as important as the author and has to improvise and has to create something altogether new while having her hands tied or handcuffed. That is the challenge of the translator.
2: Wow, that's so interesting. This idea of inventing a language for an invented language or one that doesn't really exist. Yeah. Um, And there's also, you know, examples of authors like, you know, most famously Shakespeare, who made up words in English. How do you make up words in another language?
3: Yeah, that's a a fascinating challenge. And I would say that is why, for me, and I think for Restless, translators are our true heroes. A good translator disappears while being noticed. And finding that good translator for each book is like being a matchmaker. And then the process continues. You have the manuscript that arrives, and you have sent it out to a copy editor. You yourself get heavily involved in that process, and you shape it into page proofs that uh, become bound proofs that are sent out. And then you have the big challenge. The challenge is there is an audience out there that is hungry for this type of literature. How are you going to find that audience? And you work very closely as a result with booksellers. Booksellers are the next hero in the story. In many ways, the bookseller is the individual who knows the pulse of what's happening with the community of readers that is out there. And so if you can find that match of booksellers that want to work with independent small publishers, you are going to really have an army of supporters.
1: It's been nice to learn and nice to discover that in this day and age of Amazon and automated choices, that a bookseller who really cares about a book and really likes to talk about it can still make a big difference.
3: You know, we get photographs, selfies from booksellers when they get the bound proofs or the early copies uh, smiling next to the book with a beautiful comment saying oh this book is really what I've been waiting for Uh, the the community that you create is full of devoted people young and not so young that believe in this mission believe that the United States cannot be isolated from the rest of the world and that literature plays an increasingly uh, important role in allowing that mind to be open and to be pluralistic and to understand what is happening beyond our immediate neighborhoods and in the in communities. And then finally it reaches the reader. And uh, I'm I'm hoping that there will be one reader out there, the reader that I was talking to you about before, that that reader will justify this whole effort. What is so beautiful about this whole thing is that humanity plays a very large role all through the process. From the very first moment you hear about a book to the moment you get a casual email or a Facebook uh, comment from a reader that simply says got a copy. Wow. This is great. That's
1: enough.
2: I love that little story of this tiny army of people behind a single object.
1: It's a it's a big job. It's a heavy lift to bring, to bring a book it's out into the world. It's just a book, you could say. Yeah, I but mean, I, hey, on the other hand, it's a book. No, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I think it's, it's worth remembering of books in general, and certainly if you're talking about literary books, and certainly if you're talking about translated books. But increasingly making books and buying books and reading books is a kind of countercultural act. You know, people have often asked who we think of as our competition. And I have to say, I don't see our competition as any other publisher. I don't think our competition are other people making books. I think our biggest competition is Twitter and all the good things on TV, just the kind of cacophony of the culture. Reading books requires quiet and stillness that our world doesn't really provide very well these days.
2: Yeah, it's interesting that Twitter, in some ways, you say is your competition, but uh, you've mentioned, you know, connecting with people on Facebook and the internet, you know, the fact that we are so connected globally certainly makes your jobs a lot easier. So is there is there a tension there between the world being so close and yet so distracting?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably most individuals relationship to the internet as well. Uh, but we've we've sort I don't think I don't think the kind of work we do could be possible in an age where we don't have the kind of communication tools that we have now. Uh, so I think the trick is how to take this tool and use it productively. I and mean, books are really the antidote in a lot of ways to so much of what the malaise of the culture is. I would say
3: it's interesting because we started exclusively with digital books, but what we quickly found out from our readers, from our translators, from the booksellers, and I guess more importantly from ourselves is that the book as an artifact, the actual book, the one that you open and see, the one that you smell, that when the, the one that you carry, that you you can write on, you can fold the pages, the the one that becomes your companion is something very much attached to the way knowledge is disseminated and the way stories are are built, and it is not disappearing. Only one out of 10 readers of ours really goes for that digital version. They mostly go for that more expensive and yet more attractive printed artifact that they can keep with themselves and that uh, feels real.
1: Yeah, I think people want the, want the reading experience to be a little bit distinct from other kinds of cultural consumption. And, you know, one can certainly have a very rewarding digital reading experience. It's Certainly, I, I don't think it's a lesser form of reading, but, you know, it's on your device and it's on your phone and your email is going to still come and Twitter is still going to be there. And there's something very different about a book that's a, you know, single purpose object. It's only got one function, but it's a very, very important function.
2: Right, and it got to you by a human, like an actual human was behind it. And that seems to be the distinction, right? It's not... Coming to you by an algorithm, there's a curator behind it, and yep. that curator is not a supercomputer. It's right. it's you two,
3: and and this goes for for young readers and for older readers. Young readers also want those books. You know, we used to think that older people were attached to the printed page, whereas younger people were more connected with whatever came through a screen. Uh, but it's not the case. Uh, that was an easy conclusion, and I think it's a it's a welcome one in the end. In the end, all this is about how literature matters. And uh, it matters very much, no matter how intense is the onslaught of a uh, stimulation that comes from other media.
2: Totally agreed. Even though I am sitting here talking to you as the representative of a digital <laughs> media operation, a no, podcast. But fair enough.
1: I mean, but, but again, it's about how you use the tools. It's, it's to what end. <laughs>
2: Since this episode aired, Restless has published dozens of new books, including the three winners of its Immigrant Writing Prize, which gives $10,000 and a book deal to debut work by first generation immigrants. The fourth prize period just closed, and I cannot wait to see what dazzling work comes out of it. We have links in the show notes to their catalog, as well as a few excerpts from their titles that we've published over the years. And last year, I did an interview with the writer and translator of the first ever Malagasy novel in English, Beyond the Rice Fields, which is also a restless book. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better?